morning, Southbridge. Today we continue our series four. In fact, we wrap it up today. I'm a little bit sad. I've loved this one. Just talking about what we're supposed to be for and representing Jesus Christ. Ultimately, it's to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then we love other people because we love what he loves. And that's ultimately for the glory of God, which is what we're all created for. We're glad that each one of you are here as we conclude this series. We'll start a Christmas series here pretty soon. I'll tell you more about that next week. But uh, if you're a guest with us today... Thanks so much for showing up, and uh, I want you to know that we appreciate you, and hopefully you received a popcorn box on your way in that gives you some information about the church. We want to give you a gift as well before you leave today, so if you fill out your connection card, take that out to the first-time guest kiosk. As you leave the front doors, it's on your left. If you take that out there, we're going to make a donation to a ministry you'll get more information about when you turn that in, a ministry that actually rescues children, women, sometimes men, out of uh, labor slavery, out of sex slavery, and if you turn that card in today, we'll make a donation to them, and we also have another gift that we'd love to give you, and so if you would fill that out turn it in. We would appreciate that a ton. And then also, I just want to say to those of you, while they're filling out their cards, the first, second time guests, um, those of you who are regular attenders, uh, members of Southbridge, been around for a while, uh, let me just say thank you. Um, a genuine thank you um, for your generosity. Thank you for your believing in this vision, seeing that God's doing something special here. I've heard before that about 50% of church plants don't even exist after three years. And uh, we're a little bit over four years old, and God's been doing some incredible things at Southbridge. Uh, Not only you can look around and see how many people are here and feel the life of what God's doing, you can almost sense his presence when you walk in the front doors. And and then, but not only that, but he's uh, saving people. We get people that trust Jesus Christ as their Savior on a regular basis. He's reconciling relationships with people, sometimes in marriage relationships, sometimes in friendships, parents and children. It's been amazing to see him do that. He's breaking addictions. There's newfound freedom for many people. For many people, you came here and maybe you knew Jesus already and you felt like you were walking with him, but he's taking you to a deeper level of understanding of the gospel and new steps of faith that you've been taking in your journey. And so that's been amazing. I want to give a special thank you to those of you who've been part of our Bridge Initiative project, we've done this project. We started about a year, a little bit over a year and a half ago, um, called the Bridge Initiative. For those of you who don't know what that is, we just don't believe that we're going to be meeting at the movie theater forever. And so we wanted to start planning, kind of building a nest egg like a young couple would do if they were renting an apartment uh, for a future facility. And we don't know exactly what that looks like. We haven't identified a project for that. We've got a bunch of people that are doing a lot of work on that on a regular basis. Um, our realtor's out. Hopefully he's searching right now. <laughs> but he's out looking around, and we've got uh, different teams that are looking at numbers and parkings and all that kind of different stuff that happens. But uh, I got a report a little over a week ago that uh, you've given already to date over $950,000. And it was a three-year project, three-year $2 million project. We're just over the halfway point. We still haven't identified a place, but you're still giving generously. Now, I know some of you are a little bit behind in some of that giving, and the end of the year is coming up, so that'd be a great time um, to get caught up on some of that. But some of you have actually been given a report. Some people have actually already met their three-year goal and are continuing to give to that. And so I I was incredibly blessed by that, just knowing that people aren't giving out of obligation because they wrote down a number on a a pledge card or they're feeling like somebody's going to come knocking on the door with suits on like the lemonade guys here or whatever type deal, but because you desire to see the vision continue to go forth. And so I wanted to thank you genuinely on behalf of the leadership of our church um, for your generosity and that. And then also just remind you of the Bridge Initiative. If you don't know what that is, um, you can contact our office. We can tell you more details about our answer questions. And if you want to be a part of that, as you consider your year-end giving, uh, we would be incredibly blessed by that as well. And what we're going to do today is we're going to continue the Series 4. And what we've been talking about, for those of you who haven't been around, is we talked at the very first week about some research that was done by some guys named Gabe Lyons, Dave Kinnaman. They actually wrote a book called Unchristian, if you want to see all the details of the research. And what they found is that people outside the church, agnostics, atheists, Islamist, Buddhist, had some very strong opinions about people that claim to be born-again followers of Jesus Christ. And what they actually believe about us would be contrary to what we want to be known. 
They think that we're hypocritical and judgmental and anti a lot of stuff. And in the book, they actually say we're becoming famous for what we're against. And so what we're doing is we're asking ourselves the question, so what are we for? Not just so we can do a PR campaign through the community and have a better representation of Christians, but ultimately so we represent God better. We're going to continue to do that this morning. Let me pray for us as we open up God's word and look at Exodus chapter 20 again. Let me pray. Father, we come into your presence. We ask that you'd make yourself known this morning. I pray for those that will hear your words that have yet to place their faith in you, that today would be the day that you become Lord and Savior of their lives. And I pray for each one of us that we catch a glimpse of your glory this morning. As we open your word, I pray you'd reveal some of your beauty, some of your glory, just a, a glimpse of your robe, your, your back, whatever you decide to show us. Will you just show us yourself in some way? And God, don't let us be the same. It makes no sense that we would have you living inside of us and we could be the same. Father, please transform us. Please transform our minds, our hearts, our lives, and make us doers of your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I trust that you had uh, a good week when you think about your week as a whole, and if not, I am sorry for that, and hopefully this will be a turning point for you today. I'll tell you a little bit about my week. It was my mom's birthday on Tuesday, and so I was able to speak with my mom. She turned 30 again, and so that was a great blessing to her. I was just thinking about that. She was negative five when I was born, so um, it was wonderful uh, to be able to chat with her. But talking to mom, sometimes I don't like that conversation because she reminds me of what I was like when I was a kid, and we were reminiscing a little bit, and she was telling me about all the things that I wanted when I was a kid. She reminded me that I wanted a go-kart at one time. I don't even remember ever wanting a go-kart. But apparently, like, if you gave me a go-kart today, I'd be like, oh, that's kind of cool. Drive that around the neighborhood. Maybe dangerous, a little low to the ground or whatever. But at that point in my life, I actually longed for, really wanted a go-kart. She reminded me I wanted an Atari at one time in my life, which an Atari, if you don't know what that is, it's like this antiquated video game system where there's a joystick and one button, and you shoot like lasers at centipedes that come down from the sky, apparently, and for some reason that caught my fascination as a child, and I really wanted an Atari. Eventually, I wanted a Nintendo. She told me about some intangible things that I wanted. She reminded me of a 13th birthday party that I had, and my mom was a single mom, and so you can imagine what it'd be like. She had allowed me to have a sleepover with a bunch of my buddies. And so we had all these 12-year-old and 13-year-old boys stand in our house. She said there was 13 of us on my 13th birthday party. For some reason, we did that. And so we had 13 little boys over the house wanting to play video games, watch movies, eat and drink sugar so we could be amped up. And so you can imagine what this was like for my mom. And she said the thing that we really wanted to do, that we longed for, was to go teepee in our neighborhood. Now, if you don't know what teepeeing is, uh, teepee stands for toilet paper. And it's a bathroom product. It's a noun, actually. You turn it into a verb, you go TPing. And so what you do is you go out and you sneak out in the neighborhood, usually to someone's house that you actually like, as random as that is, and you throw toilet paper in their trees. And apparently, I really wanted to do this. At this stage of my life, that makes no sense to me. Like, one, it's wasteful. Two, why would I want to go outside? I could be getting sleep, like going outside in the middle of the night. But, and then I would do that to someone that I like so they can get out there and like try and Spray, I don't know if you spray down with a hose, you knock it out with the, I don't know what you do, but why would I want to take bathroom product and throw it in my neighbor's foliage? Like, it makes no sense. But apparently, I longed for this. My mom was so nervous that we were going to do this, she didn't want to go to sleep that night either. And so she said what she did is she went around the house while we were playing video games and stuff, and she grabbed all of our sneakers, and she put them in her bedroom and hid them so that she could go to sleep because she figured we wouldn't sneak out without shoes. And apparently, we didn't because I don't remember sneaking out and teeping at that point. But I look back, and I think, why did I want that? And each one of us, we're at different stages of life. Some of you have certain things that you long for from school. Maybe you want your parents to do. You got the Christmas wish list coming up soon. So maybe there's a, a list of things that you want. Some of you have things that you want out of a relationship, less tangible things. 
It might be a, a dating relationship. It might be a marriage relationship. It might be a friendship. It might be a relationship with your parents or your community group. We have certain things we want from our church. There's certain things you long for, you want today. There's a reason why you came here today. See, life is all about these wants, these desires that we have. What are your longings? What are your greatest wants in life right now? In fact, I want to challenge you to take out a piece of paper, and this will be for your sake. You don't have to show it to anyone today, but would you write down your top three desires, your top three wants? And they could be lots of things. They could be financial wants. We have things that we want from our job. Maybe you want certain promises to be fulfilled that your boss gave you, or you want a bonus, or you want some vacation time. If that's one of your wants, write it down. Maybe you want to be out of debt. Maybe you have certain longings for your spouse. You want them to fulfill some things that you thought would happen in marriage that haven't happened yet, and you, you long for that. Or you have certain goals in life, ambitions, accomplishments that you want to obtain. Maybe there's certain relationships you want. Maybe you want to be married. Maybe you want to have a child. Maybe you want to be at the next stage of life, and you're just not there yet. What are your top three wants? And it could be a power tool or a car or whatever it is, but write them down. Let's give you a second. If you don't have paper, maybe you grabbed a donut on the way and you got a scrap napkin there. From It's for you to keep, so you write on whatever you want. Your top three wants, do you have them? Now let me ask you a very interesting question. What if, what if those things, those things you wrote down on your list, are the very thing that's robbing you from the life that God intended for you? What if it's those things that you wrote down on that list that are the very thing that's stopping you, that's stealing from you, true contentment? What if it's the desire, the longing for those things that's actually robbing you of real life and real satisfaction, and we think to ourselves, if I just had this, then I would have contentment. If I just had this, then I would have satisfaction. If I just had this, then everything would be okay, right? But what if, and I don't know what you wrote down, and I have no idea what your motives were for writing certain things down, but what if those are the things that are stopping us from having the thing that I believe that each one of us probably wants? Today we're going to talk about how God is for contentment. And the question we have to ask ourselves inevitably in applying this message is going to be, are we content? And is the life that we're living, would it even be possible for us to attain contentment? If you have your Bibles, it's going to be in the book of Exodus, the second book in the Old Testament. And you probably have it marked if you've been around for a little while, but in Exodus chapter 20, we've been talking about the Ten Commandments. We've been talking about what God is for. We see, it's his followers, if we want to be for what he is for, if we want to represent him well. And so ultimately, we've been looking at some of the things that he's for, and we looked at these top 10 things that he lists in the Old Testament with these people that have a, a relationship with him. And, and I got to say it one more time. I've said it so many times, but I want to make sure you get this. The key to understanding the Ten Commandments is to understand the context. And the context is that these are not just rules that drop down from the sky. These are not just something that you do, and you know, if you do them really well, then, then you'll have a relationship with God, or God will like you more. See, a relationship with God's always been the same, Old Testament, New Testament. By grace through faith. In the New Testament, by grace, God sent his one and only son to die as the atoning sacrifice, the sacrifice in your place for your sins, taking upon the full wrath of God so that he could offer you life. And by faith, you accept that life and have a relationship with the Son, Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, it was still by grace through faith. And by grace, he chose these people that were in bondage, in bondage to Egyptian slavery for 400 years. And then by faith, they walked into relationship with God as his chosen people. They walked across that Red Sea. Now they've been living in this freedom for three months. And God tells them how to live in this freedom at Mount Sinai when he gives these Ten Commandments, when he speaks to all two million of them. If you read Exodus chapter 19, you know what a scene this is. It's God who's transcendent comes to the earth, and the earth doesn't know what to do, so Mount Sinai starts to shake violently. 
And this smoke cloud comes and encompasses this mountain because God comes down in fire and there's thunder and lightning and the trumpet sound and God's voice speaks to two million people, not just to Moses, to all two million people. If you were there that day, you would never forget it. Can you imagine hearing the very voice of God giving you instruction on how to live in relationship with him? And that's what happens for these Israelites. God speaks all these words in Exodus chapter 20. In verse 2, he says this, I am the Lord, your God, a personal God, who brought you out of slavery, out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. We saw the first week that he's a God who's for freedom. It's for freedom he set you free. When the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. He doesn't take them out of bondage to Egyptian slavery to bring them into more bondage, now bondage to religious rules. Instead, he shows them to live within these rules so that you can know true freedom So we've got this misconception that freedoms, we do whatever we want, and no one tells us what to do. And you know what? Ask anyone who does that. It's miserable. Real freedom is that the God of freedom rules and reigns in our lives, and that's why he says what he does in instructing us on freedom. You shall have no other gods before me, because every other God leads to bondage. Yourself on the throne of your life leads to bondage. Self-improvement leads to bondage. Ministry leads to bondage. Money leads to bondage. Sex leads to bondage. Any addiction, any sinful behavior leads to more and more bondage. All the things that we can put on the throne, even good things that we put in God's place, leads to bondage. He's a God who's for freedom, and it makes sense that he'd say the next thing. You shall not make for yourself an idol. There's no phonies, because he is the real thing. That's why he's able to be exclusive, because there's no one else like him. And he says, don't accept any phonies, because he's the real thing. In verse 7, we drop down and we see that where he's for the fame of his name. And as his followers, we wear his name. And everything we do, we're representing his name. And we're not to defame, but we're to bring fame to his name. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Verses 8 through 11, we saw our unique commandment because it's the one out of the Ten Commandments that's not repeated in the New Testament. Because God's not for a day, he's for rest. Real rest, soul rest that's only found in Jesus Christ who says, come unto me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest for your soul. We found rest in him. And there's a transition in the commandments. They're no longer just about our relationship with God. Now that if we're in this relationship with God, it'll affect our relationship with other people. And the first one that's mentioned here is the first human relationship we have. He's for honor. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. And he's for life. And he's for sexual commitment. He says, you shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery. And then he says, you shall not steal, because he's for generosity. And last week we saw he's for truth. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And this week, the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or maidservant, his ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And so here we see... God condemning, coveting our neighbor's stuff, desiring, longing for, wanting things that he's not provided for us yet. And the question becomes for us, why does he want us to not covet? And it's not just because he's against coveting, it's because he's for contentment. And that's an interesting one. Because I bet if we surveyed everybody here today, everyone here would say, I'm for contentment, so I'm for what God's for. But the unique thing about this is almost no one ever experiences true contentment. And why is that? It's because contentment always comes at a cost. Contentment comes at a cost. And to us, it seems like it shouldn't come as a cost because it's just something we should get. It's something we should receive. Almost everything in life, we expect to have a cost. 
You buy a cup of coffee, you expect it to have a cost. I bought my wife a cup of coffee the other day. I'm not a coffee drinker, and so I'm not into the whole coffee culture, so I walk up to the counter, and I feel like I'm speaking a foreign language. Like, I say some words, I don't even know what they mean. Grande, and like I'm French or something at the thing, and latte, and blah, 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 whatever. The little flavor she likes, and, and I say this thing, and I'm hoping I got it right, and then I got to pay them five bucks for a cup of coffee. There's a cost with a cup of coffee. And then I stand there for 10 minutes, and then I leave there, and I smell far more like beans than I ever wanted to smell in my life. But I wanted to encourage my wife, so I got her this cup of coffee. But I knew there was going to be a cost. And there's always a cost for material stuff, right? But this seems to be an immaterial thing, so we think there isn't a cost. But there's always a cost with immaterial things, too. Relationships. They're going to cost you time. They're going to cost you some emotional capital. In some sense, you're going to have to invest. There's some trans- if you want a real good relationship, there's going to be some transparency. You're going to have to give some of yourself. There's a cost there. But it's unique with contentment because we think it's something that we should just get. Whether it's when we get a certain item, we, we pay the cost for that item, and then we should feel content. Or whether it's when we have a certain experience or a certain relationship, once we spend that, then we should be have, just receive, automatically have contentment. But contentment comes at an incredibly great cost. And that's what this passage shows us. It shows us what the cost is, too. It's going to cost us our coveting. It's going to cost us our coveting hearts. And what God says is this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant or his fancy ox or his fluffy donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And you might not struggle with some of the specifics within that verse, but what's being said here? Don't covet. What does that word covet even mean? Well, very basically, in Hebrew, it could be translated, we put a lot of stuff on the word covet, religiously, but really, very literally, in Hebrew, that just means desire. You shall not want, you shall not desire, you shall not long for. So, is God saying that desires are wrong, that wants are wrong, longings, cravings, any of the stuff we wrote down on our paper is wrong? No, God's a desiring God. We see Him existing. And three people, one essence. That's one God. That's the Trinity. He's one in essence. He's three in person. Each one of the people we see in the essence of God have desires. We see it throughout Scripture. You see the Father. He has desires for your life. It says in James that the anger, he's talking about anger in James, and he says the anger that we have doesn't produce the righteous life that God desires, that he longs for, that he wants for us. We see him use the words language of will. The Greek word for will would be the same. It would be the equivalent. It's a desire. It's God's will that you, and you fill in the blank with multiple things that are said in the New Testament. Romans chapter 12, it says that we can know God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. When? We're not being conformed to this world. We're being transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're able to discern God's good, pleasing, and perfect desire. You see, the son has desire in the garden of Gethsemane. He says, not my desire, not my will, but yours be done. His desire is ultimately to do what the father wants him to do. He has desires. The spirit envies for you. He longs for you. We quench the spirit when we sin, when we go after things that aren't what God intended for us, but he longs for you. He, he has desires, and then your flesh has desires. And so Galatians chapter 5 tells us there's a battle within us. It says, for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit desires what is contrary to the sinful nature. So there's this battle within us of desires. We're created by a being who's a being of desire, and so it makes sense that you will have desire. In fact, when Jesus is asked what's the greatest commandment, he talks about desire. He says, love God. It's a desire word. When God talks about you, he talks about loving you. It's a desire word. Desire is natural. Desire is good. But desires can be very bad too. See, it's not that you desire that's the problem. It's that we oftentimes desire the wrong things. And what's said in this passage here is specifically not don't covet. It doesn't say ever in this passage, don't covet. Look at it. It does not say you shall not covet, period. It's the object of your desire, the object of your coveting. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's house, (laughs) which, remember the context here. I thought this was kind of funny when I just kind of read this at the beginning of the week. Like, what kind of house do they have? They've been in bondage to Egyptians for 400 years, and now they've been three months, they've been out, they're living in tents, they're wandering in the wilderness. Like, is one guy looking at the other guy's tent going, why does he have a two-story tent and I have a one-story tent? Like, like, what's going on here? Does one guy have like a mosquito window and the other guy doesn't? Why is it that, what are you coveting here? But then as I studied this week, I learned that house doesn't mean necessarily their physical structure that they live within. It's words that can be used for property as a whole, for in fact, their family. It'd be like saying, don't long for someone else's life. Don't look at someone else and wish that you had their life, their family, their estate, their money, their stage of life, their stuff, their body, their mind, their skills. Because what will happen is you will be robbed of the life that God intended for you. Because what you're longing for, and this is what covetousness is, is when you long for things that God never intended for you to have. And you see it throughout the scriptures, starting with Eve. When you long for things that were never intended for you, that's coveting. And notice there's no behavior required for this commandment. If you've wondered in any way before, do I really break these because I've never killed anyone or I've never stolen anything or I've never... This one gets right to the heart because this is talking about our desires. Have you ever wanted some of these things that God never intended for you? And he goes on and he says, your neighbor's spouse, your, your neighbor's wife, or his manservant or maidservant. And I also scratched my head and thought to myself, wait, they got servants like this kind of, what in the world? Or his ox or donkey, or then it gets real broad just in case you'd think to yourself, I don't want his servant and I don't want his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. See, this is a huge problem. Because we live in an incredibly covetous culture. In fact, the majority of your desires, are try, they try to manipulate them in advertisements by making you desire something that you didn't even know existed before the commercial came on. But you long for it. You need it now. It'll fulfill your every heart's desire. And you think about our culture and what our culture is like. Have you ever been to a little kid's birthday party before? And I don't know if you've ever done this or not. I recommend it. Not because you need to play pin the tail on the donkey. It's a wonderful study in sociology. And, and I'll tell you, you go to a little kid's birthday party, and it's fun. Like, everybody's happy. There's balloons and hats, and you know, they're blowing their little kazoos. Everybody's got the same amount of stuff at the beginning of the party. But inevitably, what happens in the party is that there comes a point where one child gets to open a bunch of presents, okay? This is the best part, because now we've got Susie, the chosen one. And she gets to sit there in the living room, and they put all these presents around her. You know, like Kathy, her friend, and Bobby's there, and all the kids are there. And one of the kids could have been their best friend like two seconds ago, right? And they're helping them open their presents. And then all of a sudden, Susie opens like a shiny plastic My Little Pony with long hair that when you brush it, it glitters and sings songs or something. Now, Kathy didn't even know 10 seconds ago that this existed. And they were best friends. But now, watch out. Because this cute little four-year-old girl, she's going to take somebody out to get to that pony. I'm telling you, it happens at every one, every one of these parties. And she can be so sweet, and mom, you better get me one of those ponies or I'm going to embarrass you like crazy. And she's throwing a fish, she's going after this. She might have been the one that actually gave the pony, she didn't even know. But she's going after the pony at this point, and she's, she has to have, 10 seconds ago, she didn't know this existed. But now, the shiny plastic pony with the glitter glow hair that sings songs will meet every longing her soul has ever had. And it's sad to see with kids, but we don't change, do we? We disguise it differently. But you sense it in us when somebody that you know gets the promotion. And you wonder, why not me? You see it when when you're single and and somebody gets married and, and then all of a sudden you're wondering, why am I still single? And you make it about you. 
or someone else succeeds and you long for their gifts, or you see a picture on a magazine and you long for their body, you long for their face, you long for their reputation, their power, their whatever it is. It's when we're looking and longing for things that God hasn't intended for us to have. That's covetousness. And we live in a coveting culture. And the problems are seen all around us. Pornography, where do you think that, the root of that is? It's in longing for something that was never intended for us. It's a $3 billion industry in just the United States. 40 million Americans on a regular basis will visit pornographic websites. One in three are women. It makes $3,000 every second. What's the root of that? You want a crazy stat? Young men, 18 to 24. Do you know what the percentage is that will visit a pornographic website on a monthly basis? 70. It's an incredible majority. If, we, if I told you that 70% of young men in our country are addicted to heroin, don't you think we would do something? But, but here we have this, and it's, you know what it is? It's an unseen sin. It's a sin of the heart. But it's not just that, so maybe porn's not your thing. Do you know the, the, what we have as far as debt as Americans? $917 billion in revolving debt as individuals. And I'm not talking about the trillions that we owe as a country. I'm talking about as individuals. The average person in America has $5,000 of debt on their credit card per car, per person, not household, per person. And affairs, you think about affairs, you just keep changing categories with the statistics, they're very telling. Affairs in America, do you know how many, when you ask a husband and wife in a marriage couple, how many of them, that one of them has had either an emotional or a physical affair? The answer is 41% in all married couples. 36% have an affair with a coworker. But that doesn't get to the root, because we're talking about desire. When asked how many people would have an affair if they knew they wouldn't get caught, do you know what the numbers are? For women, it's 68%. For men, it's 74%. And so it's not that they haven't already done it in their heart. They're not doing it because of the consequences. So you go back to the 41%, that's not a real number. The real number is how many of us are breaking the 10th commandment? If they even know the 10th commandment, it'd be 75% of men, 74%, and 68% of women. We live in a covetous culture, and it's normal. Let me tell you something. Somebody needs to shout this. It's killing us. And I'm just saying because porn's killing us and affairs are killing us and debt's killing us, you could say that stuff too. But this covetousness is killing us. And somebody needs to open this up. And I'll say it to whoever will listen today. Somebody needs to just go through, just look through the scriptures and see what happens with covetousness with Eve and the forbidden fruit. She's going to live forever in perfect relationship with God. She goes after the one thing that God says that he didn't intend for her to have. And now we all die. You look at Achan in Joshua chapter 7. It was his covetous eyes that killed him and his family. You look at David and what happens with him. He looks at his neighbor's wife. You talk about this verse, looking specifically at your, your neighbor's spouse and longing for that, and it kills his neighbor. And to talk about the weakness that it brings into his kingdom, the consequences through his family. And then you go to the story like Absalom. And Absalom, who's got this covetous father, now he wants his father's throne, something that he wasn't intended to have because he's got this hatred and anger towards his father, David, and his lack of leadership in their home. And he ends up killing Absalom. And you go through the scripture and you go over and over and over and it's killing us. And James tells us in the New Testament, in James chapter 4, he says, why do you have fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And then look at what he says. You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight, and you do not have because you do not ask God. And how many of you have been through some real difficult situations in families and marriages and in churches? 
And can't you see how the root of this goes back to? Because there's something that we want that's not happening. And so we fight and we quarrel and we actually go to the most extreme thing. And sometimes we haven't physically killed somebody, but we try to kill them with our words. We try to kill them with whatever authority and power we have. And why does this happen? You don't even ask God. If you asked God, what do you think he would say? If you begged God for the things on your list, what do you think he would say? And I'm not, I don't even know what you wrote on your list, so I'm not trying to imply that those things are wrong. What do you think God would say if you went to him? Do you think he would say that the key is comparison living? I do. I think that's the key. I think that's the key, one of the secrets, the first step in knowing true contentment is comparison living. That's the first step in knowing true contentment is comparison living. And some of you will hear that and think to yourself, that's crazy. That doesn't work because that's, that's part of my problem. As I look at it and my neighbor gets a new car and I didn't even know I needed a new car and I'm driving this clunker junker and it's paid for so I thought everything was fine but now I see their shiny new car and I want their car. Kind of keeping up with the Joneses or you, you thought you were okay and then you saw somebody's abs when you were checking out at the grocery store and trying to hide the Twinkies. You know, you, you felt all of a sudden you want their abs and so you, just, you think the comparison living, that's what's killing us. You think the problem the Israelites had, who these words are originally given to here. They're in slavery. You don't think that if you were a Hebrew and you were being whipped in slavery and in bondage and owned by someone, you would never look and think, I just wish I could have the whip for one day. You don't think that they thought, well, when we're free, then everything will be great. But then look what happens. Talk about the grass is greener syndrome. They, they get free and then they want to go back because back in Egypt, at least they had meat to eat. The burgers were better, so I wish we could go back and be owned and whipped and beaten and just totally forget all that stuff. Isn't that our problem is this comparison stuff? See, the problem is we compare our junk with someone else's junk. And that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about comparison living. You see, the first step is comparison living when we grasp it the way the Apostle Paul did. The Apostle Paul, if you read Romans chapter 7, he says that the 10th commandment, that's the one that got him. Because he thought with the other ones, because he, he could justify that they were outward behavior. He thought he was okay, but then contentment showed him his sinfulness. But then as a new man, look at what he says in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, if anyone else, and talks about his old life, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And let me tell you what used to be really important to me, what I used to value. These were my desires and my longings. He says this. He's circumcised on the eighth day. He had a good family background. His parents took care of him. Well, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee. <laughs> as for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. So he says, you know, I had all that stuff, but let me, let me continue to go on here. But whatever does my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, verse 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss, underline this word, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. I don't know why the NIV kind of goes British on this deal. It says rubbish, and it sounds kind of snotty, doesn't it? If you read the King James Version, it says dung. It's a little bit closer. Uh, you can go learn Greek on your own, but the Greek literally means crap. This is a bunch of, I consider being a Hebrew of Hebrews, uh, circumcised on the eighth day, uh, a Pharisee, uh, as for legalistic zeal, I was persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. And you think about the things we want. I want a, I want a family from the tribe of Benjamin. I want reputation, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. But I long for, for certain accomplishments in my life. He had a title, a Pharisee. 
He was the most zealous, persecuting the church. But just, I, I just wish I, I had it together more. I wish I could, I'd know what it was like to live what God wanted. It was for legalistic righteousness that was faultless. He says, it's a bunch of crap in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, our problem is we're comparing to the wrong things. We're comparing to other people's junk. What we need to do is compare the, the things that, that's junk here in our lives in comparison to knowing the beauty and supremacy and magnificence of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ is the key to contentment. Contentment comes at a cost. It will cost you all the desires for things that he never intended for you to have. And the first step towards this is you've got to start comparing. What is it that you long for that's not Jesus Christ in comparison to Jesus and what you have to come to the conclusion of when you truly understand who Jesus is, is that Jesus is the key to contentment. The key to contentment is Jesus Christ. I love the quote by St. Augustine. Augustine said this, our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. There's a longing in our soul. There's a hunger in our soul. What do you want out of those other things? It's not the thing that you want. It's not the go-kart. It's not the video game system. It's not the marriage. It's not the child. What do you long for out of those? There's a satisfaction that you think you will get. And what you're doing is you're being deceived into thinking that through this porn, an affair, uh, debt, that you have to you go out and God hasn't provided the money for something, you put yourself in bondage so that you can have it when you don't have the means for it, and all those things we long for is some satisfaction, some fulfillment that ultimately only comes from Jesus. Jim Elliott is the one who said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In fact, Jesus said it like this. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Anyone who wants to save his life will lose his life. There will be a cost. He never hid that there was a cost. The problem is that we are so happy and satisfied in those moments of pleasure, whether it's because of porn, whether it's because of buying something, whether it's in that relationship, when we make it perfect when it's not really and we think that's what's going to fulfill us. And we're like, C.S. Lewis says, we're like kids that are too easily satisfied. C.S. Lewis says this, we're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered us, like ignorant children, an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we're far too easily pleased. It's like I think about my own daughter, six years old daughter. We, it was her birthday a couple weeks ago, and we told her she could pick anywhere she wanted to go to eat. And you know where she picked? Days and days she gets to think about this thing. She picks Sonic. <laughs> now, I like Sonic. Sonic's not a bad thing. If you go certain hours of the day, they give you like 50 cent flavored drinks. It's great. It's a great place. But if I get to pick anywhere, I'm not picking Sonic, okay? Now, she picked Sonic. Do you know why? Because she wanted a corn dog. Now, if I told you. I would buy you any food you wanted after service today. What are you going to pick? I mean, you go to Angus Barn and get a filet mignon right after service. We'll go right over there. If I tell you, you go to McCormick and Schmidt's, get some fish. You go to Brazos, get all the meat you can eat, whatever you want. If you could pick anything, did you pick in a corn dog? I mean, you know what a corn dog is? It's a hot dog on a stick. And hot dogs are like nose cartilage and who knows what else stuffed into a thing and stick it on a stick and you put it in cornmeal batter and deep fry it. <laughs> and that sounds good, right? when you're at the fair, but no other time. Does that sound good? Why would you want that if you could have any of the best cuisine in the world? It's because you wouldn't know any better. That's the only reason you would pick that. And C.S. Lewis is saying, we're content with sex and ambition and drink when there's a feast being offered to us. Jesus Christ says, I am the bread of life. 
You come to me, you will never thirst again. Your soul has a hunger for satisfaction, a thirst, a desire to be fulfilled, to be content. And Jesus says that he will fulfill all of that. Here's the reality of the situation. We don't believe him. The issue of covetousness, the issue of lack of contentment in our life is an issue of a lack of faith. It's a lack of trust in God. See, the first commandment and the tenth commandment go right together. Don't have any other gods before me. And the tenth commandment is don't desire anything else other than me. I am the ultimate fulfillment. I will fulfill all of those needs, all of those desires, all of those longings. The other stuff isn't evil in and of itself, but the problem is we put it in the wrong place. We put it in a place where that's going to bring us contentment, where that's our greatest desire, where those are our longings, whether it's uh, success in life, whether it's a reputation, whether it's a person, whatever it is, we put it in the place of God, and ultimately that's idolatry. We've settled for a phony, and we start breaking all the commandments when we blow this one, and we all blow this one. So if anybody's been deceived into thinking that you're doing pretty good through the first nine, bad news today. So Scott, what are you saying here? Are you saying that all of a sudden now, uh, it's wrong for me to want to be married if I'm not married. It's wrong for me to want this promotion. It's wrong for me to want a bonus, a vacation, a new power tool, whatever it is. Is that what I'm saying today? Maybe. Maybe that is what I'm saying. If that thing you've placed as the reason why you do what you do. And you are the only one that can answer that. You and God. Is that thing in the place where it's why you make the decisions that you make? That desire, that longing to get the house paid off could be a good thing. Uh, to give money to some other place and you'll be known for doing. To have a marriage. It's like good stuff that you can fill in the blank here. To have child or whatever it is could be the very thing that's robbing you from the life that God intended for you. If that thing is the driving force in your life, because when that thing is the driving force in your life, it's ultimate. It's central. It is, in essence, God in your life. And that's never how it was intended to be. God is the only one that will fulfill. God is the only one that brings contentment. When you understand the beauty of Jesus Christ, not just the facts that he died on the cross to take upon the wrath of God for your sins so you could experience grace and you could experience life. Not just that, but when you know Jesus Christ and the gospel begins to transform your mind, transform your heart, transform your life, then circumstances don't matter. Whether you have the stuff or you don't have the stuff, the Apostle Paul talks about this. The guy who understood comparison living in Philippians chapter 3 and Philippians chapter 4, he says this, for I've learned, it's a process, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances whether in plenty or in want. And this guy knew a lot of circumstances. This guy knew what it was like to have his pantry full of food. This guy knew what it was like to be out at the open sea for a day and night floating around. He knew what it was like to be stoned. He knew what it was like to be flogged. He knew what it was like to be disowned by people that he thought were his people. He knew what it was like to be pursued. He knew what it was like to be almost dead. And he writes these words while he's in prison. And he says, I know what it, I know what it is to be content whether in plenty or in want, whatever my circumstances, the circumstances don't change the contentment in my heart because nothing can take Jesus Christ away from me. He can do all things through Jesus Christ. That's not just to win an athletic endeavor. That's to be in prison and still feel content. That's to be stoned and still feel content. That's to be in whatever state of life he is, plenty or want, and still no contentment because Jesus Christ is Lord of his life. See, when Jesus is Lord, material stuff becomes secondary. 
When Jesus is Lord, contentment becomes a reality. When Jesus is Lord, it costs you everything. See, the cost is great, and that's why so few people will ever know true contentment, because few people will know what it is to have Jesus as Lord in their life. See, God's for contentment. The question for us individually is, is are we content? And the bigger question is, is Jesus Christ Lord? Is he central? Is he ultimate? Is he most beautiful? Is he most magnificent? Does he rule? Does he reign? Is he central in your heart on the throne of your life? Because if he's not, you can work really hard not to steal anything, and you can work really hard not to ever commit adultery and be nice to your parents and try and fulfill all these other commandments, but you miss the whole thing because God is to be central. That's the only way we'll ever love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love what he loves, which is our neighbor's and that he will be glorified through our lives as Jesus Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we bow before you. We bow our hearts before you. We repent for all the times when we put other things in your place. Our own agenda, our own reputation, our financial desires, our physical desires. We put all these things on the throne of our lives, God. Will you wipe them out? Will you smash the idols today in our lives? And Father, I pray for anyone that doesn't know your son Jesus Christ in a personal way at all, much less battling whether he's Lord or not, but they don't even know him. I pray today, right now, they would acknowledge their desire to have a relationship with you, their longing for you. And they'd admit their sin, the thing that's hindering them from that relationship. And Father, I pray that even right now as they sit in their seat, and you can pray as you sit in your seat, just ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord. Ask Jesus to be your Savior because he died on the cross for your sin. He's able to be because he rose from the dead. He defeated death. So he's unlike any other false god you'd put in the place on your life because he's defeated death. And that's why he's able to offer you real life, real contentment, real joy, real peace with God. And if you want that today, you can receive that, but you just acknowledge your sin before him, that that's what's separating you from him, and that you desire to have a relationship with him, and that you believe that his son Jesus died and paid for your sins, and you want to receive that life. If you do that today, would you just mark it on your connection card before you leave? We want to be able to pray for you. We want to follow up with you, be able to help you. We want to be able to get some information in your hand to help you grow in a relationship with him. And Father, I pray for those of us that know you as Savior, but sometimes battle with you being Lord of our lives. I pray that we'd submit, that we would just lay everything out, that we'd give it all to you, and that you'd be our number one sole desire. In Jesus' name I pray.